to another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast where three dungeon masters, who've been doing this for way too long, talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by... Tony. Fill my eyes with that double vision, turn it, no disguise from that double vision. Yeah, you know, uh, that is DMD. Foreigner, bro. Foreigner. Doing foreigner. And I feel I feel like even if someone else tries to do the rock and roll DMs thing and sing on their podcast, no one else is taking on double vision. I feel confident in that. Yeah, Not with, with I, that, I, me I, playing on the loot, backing it yeah, up. I mean I've done some I've done some questionable choices. So I feel like I've really created a niche market here. It's like your characters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. And I have to uh, oh, my plots. really mm-hmm make a very good distinction between that dm david that's out there you know doing great articles and stuff i actually just referenced him in one i'm writing today and i'm like oh man do i have to like tell people that it's not me i'm not even sure i don't want to steal his thunder so i've been creating my niche Rock and roll well, it's not like something it's not like your name is xavier or something that really <laughs> amazingly yeah. i do not have to fight with anyone over being quote dm thorin yeah, right? Like that's it's not in the US. Maybe maybe in Sweden, but yeah. maybe some weird Tolkien cult somewhere or something. It is actually it's actually a uh, it's a Norse name. Thorin is a apparently I've been told that it's not uncommon around Minnesota. That's all right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Or the Dwarven Kingdom, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, apparently all the apparently all the Swedish immigrants hit New York said fuck this and continued right on until they hit uh, like just virgin woods and state. And that's where Minnesota, that's the how Minnesota, Minnesota was found. Yeah. That's so, where the Balrog is, but he just gives you weird sausages and pretzels. <laughs> I thought that was Oregon. No bears. All right. So that is, I think that is probably as far off topic as we've gotten yet, but Dave's, Dave's intro song about double vision ties right into what we want to talk about in today's podcast, because today we're going to talk about, well, party dynamics and what we as dms want out of our parties like what how how we want the players to interact how we're hoping or or, or not caring about the way their characters their their, their skill sets uh complement or overlap with each other how they play emotionally and how they play with each other so it's really gonna be an episode a little bit far ranging about just in general you know what do you want out of that out of your players and out of your party dynamics when you're sitting down to run a game. And I think maybe the best place we can start this is just kind of open it up. You know, guys, what do you want to see from your party? Well, I'd like them to have great chemistry and I'm going to say something crazy. The foundation of that is getting along. If they're mm. not getting along, they're not running smooth. I mean, if you have overlapping skills and that's an issue, uh, I'm going to say something all equally crazy where it's like, if I'm in the woods and the barbarian blows a nature check, the druid better be able to make a nature check. Not saying like, <laughs> well, we're shadow luck guys. We are lost in the woods. Well, that that would happen in our Storm Kings game because I don't think any of us have nature at all. Like even close to a a, a good score. Oh, we're terrible uh, at it. Yeah, because we don't actually have an actual cleric or something who has high wisdom. So like we're just. We're just barely. We're like a high charisma party just across yeah, the board. That is true. High charisma, high strength, high constitution and decks. Well, so, we, the con and decks are a little spread a little thinner, but charisma and strength are definitely where the parties, well, strength lie. And none of us is very wise. 
which uh, is probably why we were so happy to go storming into the Storm Giants Citadel, right? But I think that that was a good uh, that's a good example because you have a lot of a lot of characters in that game specifically that could be considered similar in terms of like what they would do. But we all have really found our niches, you know. Even so far as let's say we did have a cleric in the party, that would be kind of weird because our warlock took on this weird celestial past so he's almost playing like a cleric but he's a warlock you know so um so i think that we're actually a good example of that where it's not necessarily uh the skills and 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 what's on the paper thorn you've said this a lot of times you don't want your character you don't want your players playing off their paper you want them off of the sheet off of the table in a way you know and i think that that plays for party dynamics too so i'm always looking forward to get back to your question tony i think you said it right you, people to get along because a lot of the other things fall into place there, but everyone is bringing their own neat interpretation of whatever they're trying to do to the table. And I want to uh, try to nurture that and have everyone else kind of nurture that too, awesome. if that makes sense. You know, and that's very much the approach I try to take to it too, but there's, again, you know, we, we say this a lot, there's kind of a trade-off, you know, on the one hand, I really want everyone to come in and play whatever character they want to play. And I don't really want them to worry too much about whether or not the other characters are going to like that character they're bringing into the game. You know, I want people to kind of, you know, make room for other players to do their thing. I mean, if there's direct confrontation where you have an evil, like, like, you know, chaotic evil and lawful good players and, or, I mean, char player characters, and they get in some kind of conflict and they kill each other, I mean, so long as everyone's can roll with that, you know, and, and kind of and move on and, and handle that however it has to be handled amongst each other and understand it's still a game, I'm fine with it. If if there's two warriors, I don't care. If there's two monks, I don't care. If the whole party is warriors, I feel like it's fine. But I know not all the DMs feel that way. And one of the things, the way I approach it is, if I'm letting the characters make their, if I'm letting the players make their own characters however they want them to be, I just, you know, I'm going to bring them together and then I'm going to sort of tailor the challenges in the game to be easier, harder based on what they have at the table. You know, you're going to lean into the things they do well. You're going to throw things at them they don't do well when you want to make it a little harder or you want to kind of make them understand their characters are a fish out of water a little bit. And in general, I think that's fine. However, sometimes that can cause problems, especially in 5th edition, because you wind up with characters kind of sitting on top of each other. You can wind up with what Tony considers, you know, a lack of party balance a little bit. Whereas for me, like, I don't care if the party doesn't have a cleric. I figure there's so much healing in 5th edition, they'll be fine. And if not, I'll just throw more potions out there and they can handle it that way. You know, they've, they, they've got to manage it, but I've got to facilitate the way they're going to manage what they have party role-wise. Yeah, and like you guys both said, they got to be friends. You know, they got they have to they have to be willing to get along with each other enough to let everyone do their thing. You know, if if it's like, oh, I hate when a player does this, and then the other player shows up and they start kind of rubbing each other the wrong way, you're not gonna have a good time. Yeah, and as much as I've said it before that I would love to play, a, I would love to run a game where like the party was all like one, like all a wizards guild or something. They're all wizards, and they're all different types of wizards. But I don't know if there's enough to be able to so the role play would be, be have, have to be so heavily different because there's not enough of a separation within that class sometimes to have like necessarily maybe five of them right because mm. people are always saying like well how can i be a necromancer well i mean you know pick necromantic spells but that doesn't stop you from also knowing you know featherfall or something you know what i mean so uh, that separation there. But as much as I, I say I would like to, to run one of those, 
it'd be interesting, and I think it would have to do with who was at the table and who was playing, as to what type of character they were bringing, if it was all the same class or something. Well, back in the day, I mean, I'm sure you guys ran into this yourselves, where you'd be in a party like, hey, I'm a fighter, and I'm a fighter too. And what are you? You're a fighter. Hey, that's great. We're all fighters. Because you know why? Your choices was fighter, ranger, paladin. If you're a martial class, that's freaking it. And you just had 14 shades of fighter. You know what's different about me than him? I'm using a great sword, and he has a great axe. Ta-da! Maybe his strength's a little bit higher. My con's a little higher. And in those situations, that you have to really, it's up to the players to differentiate themselves personality-wise. You can still have not having one or two factors to find these characters and make them deep and interesting, so long as they don't have identical backstory where they're not these grizzled, older, war veteran fighters whose parents were killed by the big evil force. Mm. But with that, too, uh, I've been a skills character and been in the campaign and then had another player who was a martial character nailing the skill roles. And I'm like, what in the F? But, Dave, you're a uh, you're a skills character in my game in Star Kings Thunder. Did you think that ever happened to you uh, over the course? Of, no, uh, if anything, I think that we actually started to uh, on you too hard. <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, there was a level of that, but I think also we. Like I said, we started to to interact enough that I'll I will even try to pull back sometimes and uh you know have someone else talk or something. But as Thorne has said in, in multiple occasions, sometimes that while that's great in terms of role play and in terms of bringing somebody to the table, they also have like a plus two, and I'm rolling with like a plus twelve. So is it possible that they just they crush that that skill roll? Sure, but. Does it make sense mechanically? Does it make sense within the within the story itself? Does it, you know? But I think that you as a DM have been absolutely uh, very open to having a skills character and looking and putting things in there for that to happen. Uh, it's just sometimes strange because people want to roll dice. And if we're having a lot of negotiations all the time and it's all on one character, that can start to get a little like, all right, well, this is cool for the story, but I'm bored, you know? You know, it's interesting you bring that up because it's funny because you're the skill character and you haven't seen kind of any issues like skill overlap or overshadowing. I have sometimes. Um, and actually, I think this is a good time to talk about, we do have a reader email today or, or uh, yeah, yeah um, a someone, uh, Ellie, entered a message into the what's your problem field on our website. And if you're listening and you do have something you'd like to hear us discuss, you can either go to three wisedms.com and enter it in the what's your problem field. And we'll get that message and we might be able to work it into a show or send us an email at three wisedms at gmail.com or visit us on Facebook and Twitter. We're talking there all the time. So if you have a question, we'd love to work it in. Here was Ellie's. Now Ellie's asking a lot. Once to, yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna skip a little bit because we're not with this. Well, this Ellie, this is the it best is we're gonna do as far as an episode response. about players. I don't think we're doing one for players. We're doing one about players here. She does she does say she loves our podcast and would like us to do an episode for players. But really, getting to the you know the meat of the question here is what do you do about overlapping skill sets? Quote: I joined an existing fifth level campaign as a rogue swashbuckler, aware that one of the quote original players was a four one fighter rogue. I figured he probably leveled rogue for the sneak attack, and the DM okayed my character. But then the opportunity to sneak attack arose, and it was ruled um basically they decided to give it to the other player because they because their plus 10 stealth beat ellie's plus seven stealth that player's perception and charisma both seem really high too the dm still made it fun for us to listen to him sneak through a place 
but I couldn't help but feeling redundant. I'm worried that I don't have much of an individualized role to play or much to offer the campaign mechanically. Quote, sure, the role play will be will, will still be individualized and special, but I'd like for my character to be useful in the nuts and bolts of gameplay too. What is a player to do when two player skill sets overlap so much and when, when the designated first level rogue makes a better rogue than the fifth level rogue? This isn't the only case of overlap. Two other players are a druid and a paladin of the Oath of Ancients with similar per- priorities and personalities. Uh, so, you know, that's really, this is very specific to fifth edition, I think, but there is, there can be overlap. And I have felt times in Tony's game. So Tony, a little context about our games. Tony has worked in more skill challenges and total party skill challenges than either me or Dave. Oh, uh, God, yeah. So Tony, so Tony, you've done a lot of stuff where it's like, you know, okay, you guys are piloting the ship. You're hitting a storm. I need, I need, you know, I need you to make 10, like five checks in like, athletics to 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 man the tiller and, and trim the sails five checks in nature to navigate which we're all terrible at five checks in piloting to, yeah. to, to steer the ship and like five checks in something else and you know so we all have roles to make and i do sometimes feel like we're kind of trucking over who makes what roles and there's a lot of us who are really good at the physical stuff like Zhang, my character in your game is he's probably the best at dexterity but he's not the best at strength and his in a lot of cases where it's like make an athletics or an acrobatics role, which we all tend to do a lot with something where we figure, hey, you could either fight this with force or just kind of maneuver around it. So you, the barbarians got the big edge on strength, which is probably fair. Barbarians a bigger strength character. But there have been times we've been doing these where I'm like, OK, I'm going to fit in and make a few roles. But oftentimes, maybe the barbarian or one of the other characters is actually better at that role. So I kind of have to step back a little bit on skill challenges. And Dave, you did mention the whole issue with, okay, the whole social side of things. Zhang, the bugbear samurai, not great in the social. He he doesn't have what you call the social skills. So (laughs) I tend to talk and then wind myself backing myself into a corner of, okay, now make a charisma check. And that doesn't go well. So like these things, like these kind of little skill overlaps and gaps create, they, they add, they add tension, but sometimes they can also make your character feel like either you're redundant on the skill side or you're trying to do things you weren't good at and you kind of tripped and you wound up in a spot where you didn't want to try to make a role because your character isn't good at that kind of thing. You know, kind of, you know, if you're the big clumsy guy and get pulled out on the dance floor, still got to dance, but doesn't mean you're going to be good at it. That's the reality of 5e. We kick this around where, um, I, I disagree with both of you guys. I'm sorry, the big strong guy's got a better intimidate than the Weasley guy with a good, you know, uh, pitch. <laughs> I'm just, That's I'll gonna be that forever. We're gonna always but, uh, go back and forth with that. You know, <laughs> I, I would clarify though, what I like to see in those cases isn't so much the strong guy has a better intimidate as the strong guy helps the more the more charismatic guy make the intimidate role. Which we have absolutely done. And then you lending your aid for advantage or for an easier DC or something. That's actually one thing that I think is an easy way to begin to play with a lot. If you have a lot of skill overlap, uh, because not every character is skill overlapping in the same way. So the cleric who has knowledge of history doesn't necessarily have the same history knowledge that a wizard or a bard would have because there's lots of history, right? And and you don't know all of it. So depending on what we're talking about, Mm. I think you can easily turn the dial and teach this to your players, even say it straight out that the DC for the barbarian can absolutely try to charm the, you know, 
the guard, the town guard. Um, that DC is going to be really hard. But if the bard tried to do it or the, the warlock or the wizard, whoever, the, you know, the charmer, the face of the party, well, that DC might be even easier. And their role is they're, they're rolling with a plus 10. So, oh, my God, yeah, I'm going to try that. So I think that's a way that you can easily start to dial skill overlap in that what are you utilizing the skill for and how is your player accessing that skill? You know, saying something like athletics, that's such a broad term. I mean, we look at the Olympics and they're all doing vastly different things with athletics and acrobatics. And there's not necessarily a lot of cross training with that. You know, they can't just immediately go over to the high bars and just do it. And I'll, I'll just say as, a, as an addendum to that point, I think uh, a system like Pathfinder and probably third and, and 3.5, I'm going to guess, did something in a way where instead of the proficiency thing, they had certain skills being trained only. Like you had to have training in it to even attempt to use the skill. Now that makes it way more crunchy. And that goes against my idea of you make things more realistic and all this. It just makes it more complex. But uh, it does give a level of uh, subtlety to some of the, the overlap that could happen. But I think dialing that DC, depending on what you're asking for, is an easy way. So you have two suggestions there, one of which I like personally, I like better than the other one. Like, I, I do like the idea of you can tweak who can make this role or maybe what is the DC on this role based on the kind of character background and exposure. Yeah. So, for instance, my character is a samurai. The barbarian comes from barbarian lands. <laughs> I'm probably going to have a better shot of knowing something specific to the kind of that samurai eastern uh, Asian style culture, like in my history, I'm probably going to know something in that history better even than, than, than the Bard. So there maybe, yeah. So maybe the samurai has a dis difficulty of five because he's from that area, but the Bard's got a difficulty of 10 or 15 because he's not. Yeah. So he would have had to have lucked into it. Whereas the samurai probably should know it. On the other hand though, when you start talking about, okay, so I'm going to adjust down DCs based on the skills they're proficient in, you do wind up in a slippery slope situation because now that samurai who has to make a charisma check is making an even harder roll when they don't have the tools to make a hard roll. Very true. With. Very and true. the bard who has the tools to make a hard roll is now making an easy roll because it basically it's, you know, just, just because the DM's kind of letting them kind of slide through. So I like the altering DCs approach better for things that are not the skill itself. You know, the other things that might factor into how hard or how hard or easy is this for you? Uh, like if you grew up around horses, you may, your horseback riding is probably better than someone who didn't, no matter what your skills are. You know, so you might have a that's yeah. how I might like okay. a difficult okay. that, you know, kind of cultural kind of thing. OK, yeah. Mechanically speaking, a character who has one level and proficiency in something and their their base stat attached to that is the same with the fifth level character. The fifth level character may only net an additional plus one. So they could be, at least in the initial levels, could be really tight. So I could see how the player who's really devoted themselves to one class looks at it like that and goes, like, really? But that's just kind of one of the perils of bounded accuracy in 5e. Well, and it's something, though, yeah, I was thinking this, too, as we were going through it. A lot of times things that seem close at lower level get wider apart as you go up in level and you start getting more of your class benefits so I think even if this fighter is better at stealth at level five, the rogue's going to have more opportunities to be better at stealth at level 10 and above. Oh, right? no, the, like the, rogue, that works itself out the rogue is going to uh, Ellie's character is going to absolutely overtake the fighter because I'm I'm going to just I'm going to assume here that she with Ellie. But I apologize if not. 
but that a fifth level rogue, you're already getting into dangerous territory. You're getting into that rogue shit right now. And no one is going to be able to compete with that. So your skills in terms of being the sneak thief and the, and the, and the, the cut purse are going to ramp up real, real quick. Uh, one other thing, I think, because we've been playing so many other different um, systems, too, I think 5e gets, and, and most of the, of the D&D-style systems roll into this because you have the certain stats that you have, and you don't really have a lot of dump stats. You know, if you're yeah. depending on how you're doing, unless you're giving the person a specific array or a point by or something where you're guaranteeing them to have at least one or two dump stats, you're kind of rolling with most people having a plus two, three, four right off the bat to most of the skills. And then oh. you add a proficiency onto onto that as well. I mean, look at Tony's character in, in the Strahd game, the Barbarian. We rolled it out. He just happened to roll awesomely. So that was some hot ass stuff. Yeah, so no matter what his skill is, he has some level of of mod to it. Whereas something like a a very skill system like Cthulhu, let's say, right? Is you have a lot of knowledge in a couple things, the end, right? And then mm -hmm. it's like, good luck. Yeah, you want to try to do drive auto, you have a 10. So you have to roll 10 or under on a D100, you know? So it it, it forces uh, the skills to matter more so in a in a system like that, you know, which is different than 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 D and D is, obviously. But so the one thing I caution on there with like like the example of using like Tony's character, I remember when Tony rolled those dice, Tony's character has amazing, has like his lowest is like a 12 or something. Uh, yeah, which is which and is, I milked that human advantage. Like I just grabbed yeah. the cow, and I'm like plus one to everything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, most uh, yeah, right, that, most fifth edition characters have at least one eight floating around in their skill. So they, they usually have at least one thing that they're either get, like getting like a negative one on. And I do think you do see a lot of dump stats. I think intelligence and wisdom are actually both dump stats in fifth edition, which I find weird because intelligence never would have been a dump stat in previous editions because you got all the proficiencies from it, but there's no benefit like that in, in fifth edition. So the other thing is, as you go up in level, your class choices matter more because your proficiency bonus quickly starts to outstrip your ability bonus and all but your highest ability score. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, once proficiency hits like plus three, well, those now, okay, so you have a plus two in a skill, but someone else has a plus one and proficiency a plus three. They're now twice as good at you in that skill. Like, you know, that doubles up pretty quickly and keeps going. And then they have other benefits like um, the rogue, I believe, has uh, has some things that let them double their skill bonuses. I think the barge got some things like that, too. Yeah. You can yeah, really start extending that. Or certain uh, certain skills or, or class abilities that all of a sudden give you advantage with things like stealth or second story yeah. work or whatever it might be. Yeah. Advantage is effectively like plus five. So advantage right. is very important. I mean, advantage is as big as your biggest uh, stat bonus. I will say, too, just thinking about what you just said right there, uh, this fighter for Rogue One person, mechanically speaking, I'm going to think they're probably going to be rolling with disadvantage to any stealth check because they're probably wearing some level of disadvantage armor. Um, well, <laughs> and I wanted to bring maybe, that up, Maybe too. not. I don't know. Yeah, and there's two <laughs> things there. One is that if the, the fighter who has dipped Rogue 
is getting the stealth attack over the rogue who has dipped fighter. That should go away pretty quickly because this rogue sneak attack, I believe, is tied to your rogue level, not your overall level. It is. It's tied to rogue so, level. Because I know I had looked at the taking rogue a few times, and no, you can't just dip rogue to get a great sneak attack at higher level. you got to get the whole thing. Oh, so yeah. You'll get quickly, some sneak attack, but not that, like, 5d6 shit. No, well, I mean, <laughs> in, in the yeah. way it's set up is... Theoretically, the rogue's one attack should be dealing as much as the fighter's multi-attack. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of how that's how they tried to set it up. Like the rogue's one attack when it hits should be doing more damage than the fighter's multi-attack when the average number of them hit for the average damage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that's fair. And of course, you're cursed now with that unremovable curse, that stigma of you'll never get your level twenty cool thing in your class. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> I really do. I, 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 feel, I feel bad about that with my druid because the druid dipped barbarian for that low level. Right. Level. I can't be killed. It, yeah, he's a bear and he's too angry to die. But yeah, you never get thousand forms. Well, theoretically, you maybe, may never get thousand Maybe forms. through whatever occurs in the universe and how you change the nature so, of fate itself that the 21st level opens itself to... <laughs> The party or something. <laughs> and honestly, you probably do that. But I mean, and the reason that's a big deal is because Thousand Forms really is almost immortality. Like you can't, yeah, you pretty much, yeah. you almost can't be killed by hit point damage with Thousand Forms. You just could, every turn, you turn into a different monster, a, a different, a different beast. All right, you killed that elephant. Here's another elephant. Here's another. Yeah, like, you rest. would have to take such enormous damage and then no. fail several rolls and not be healed. Like, it's just like the, the chances of dying are- like, Nothing up my sleeve, power word kill. There's my answer to that. Finger of death. Finger, finger of death, death is nasty. Because if you die from finger of death, you You're still dead. come back as a zombie, even if they made their save. That's some harsh. That's, that's it's, like, it's like 78 or something. I forget the exact number, but basically, yeah. F uh, finger of death is you deal like 78, save for half damage, and if they die from the damage, whether you saved or not, boom, back as a zombie. That'd be fun. That's a fun role-play experiment. Oh, I can't wait to bring it out in Woodstock. Did I say that a <laughs> Spoilers. Uh... <laughs> so, what about the more... So, uh, so these are good ways for the DM to deal with these things. I, and I do think there's a lot of ways why the DM, how the DM can deal with party overlap. Would you allow this this to kind of come in this way, though? Like, do you have a problem with the way these characters are set up as a DM? Would you step in and say, well, look, we already have a fighter rogue. One of you needs to play something else. Or would you let this go and just count on it kind of working itself out? Exactly that. Yeah, I, I kind of really am dead set against saying, no, no, you can't have another dwarven fighter in here. No, get together, all sing some <laughs> songs, have different designs in your beards, knock yourself out. Like, I wouldn't want to really get involved in that. And yet, as Steve said, over time, they will differentiate themselves more dramatically in skills. Yeah, I I have never... I No, anything that... If someone brought whatever to the table, I want to play... Okay, okay. The only thing I'll ever say on is if they're... If they wanted to, you know, like we've talked about in other, in other episodes, where if they wanted, you know, special treatment of something... Uh, where I'll I'll then be like, well, no, nah, I mean, let's let's try to work something out with that. But whatever you want to play, man, you want to play long, I don't care, whatever. You know, you want to find some weirdo class, you know, you want to try to, hey, I saw the gunslinger. Or, I want to play Matt Mercer's Blood Hunter. I'd be like, all right, let me see the stats. All right, that looks pretty cool. Yeah, play it, whatever, <laughs> right? Like, who cares? Because 
like uh, that's just how it, it turns fun and like tony said you know like my god the hobbit it's it's seven goddamn dwarves and a wizard you know and then some halfling that's not and even a thief. thief and he's not even a thief you know so and don't worry about your don't worry about your plus seven stealth fucking bilbo had like a plus negative four i don't even like oh my god he got some real hands-on, you know, doing things. Oh, dude, he was on the job training hard. Yeah, or crash there, course, man, right? There, there, there's a lot of XP in stealing a cup from a dragon. Let's be honest. That was, that oh was my like, God, right? right there. You're immediately so, like level 12, immediately. <laughs> so look at this street. We came across three giant trolls. You want me to sneak up on them and steal something that they're eating. This is a terrible idea. That's exactly <laughs> how that should have played out. I mean, to be fair, it helped that everyone else in the party seemed a bit incompetent. You know, I mean, Bilbo, for being a rookie thief, was was one of the most competent members of that party. But uh, to your to your question, even more specifically, Thorne, I mean, we only know the two characters that we're talking about in this yeah. party. One's a fifth level rogue. One's a, a fourth well, level fighter, first level rogue. So. There, there are two other players that, that uh, Ellie mentions, which is oh. the, uh, the druid and paladin with a lot of overlap. Oh, it with sounds the, with the like order, right, right. Yeah, it, order, it sounds order. like this DM has taken what my approach would be, which is, look, just play whatever you guys want to play, and I'll work it out in the game. Yeah. Now, I mean, I have no problem doing that, but that doesn't mean the players don't feel that overlap sometimes. You know, this yeah, is a case where I, you're hearing um, a player get a little bit alienated because of the way the skills interact and overlap and the shadows are cast. So... I mean, do you ever step in to, to, to smooth that out, or do you smooth it out more with how you set up your adventures and the opportunities you give them to do things? Yeah, I, I think you, you just see how the party interacts, um, if they interact. Uh, as Tony said in the beginning, if they got to get along, that's kind of number one. And then you, you adjust accordingly, because everyone is going to... You might have a great example, Woodstock. So right in the very beginning, we had no road. We had no thief. And I remember Scott saying after our first night, he was like, man, we're really going to have some trouble without a thief. Cause he's, st he was still like kind of thinking very old school in terms of thief. Like, you know, we can't do anything lockpick or stealth without a thief. Right. Anyway, That was true. However, many sessions later, uh, Vic comes in, right. His daughter comes in to join the, the group and brings in a rogue. So we finally have a rogue. Oh, this is awesome. But we have a rogue that for, I don't know, 10 sessions, didn't want to stealth forward to scout anything out. So we kept sending the ranger because uh, you had OK stealth. So go on, ranger. And you know, so you you might have that, too, where, yeah, everyone thinks the rogue is going to stealth and they get awesome bonuses. But maybe that rogue is like the one from... Uh, Oh Christ! Like Conan the Barbarian, or or the Destroyer, where he's just Alex. just stealing, doesn't want to do anything. Yeah, he's not <laughs> trying to get involved. He just wants some jewels, right? That's it. So, what about when you look at party balance? I mean, what are some things you don't want to allow as the party comes together? Tony, you've talked about this a few times. Like, you do feel like party balance is important, right? It was more important in earlier editions. Mm. Like, you really needed that fighter, thief, cleric. Uh, combo fighter you needed all four of those you needed the wizard you needed all four of those elements because each one of them brought whether we even had the terms at the time and we didn't you had your tank you had your area of effect and caster you had your striker you had your healer which are really the bounding the building blocks of a modern day mmo yes you needed to literally create the party from the video game gauntlet that's what you needed to have. 
But as you said, really, by the time you hit fourth edition, the cleric wasn't specifically clerics do a lot of really awesome stuff, but they weren't as typecast into healing as they traditionally been. Much to my lament, we, you know, in Dave's campaign, when I have like, you know, I need 63 stitches and everyone's like, hey, I got a SpongeBob Band-Aid. To, to be fair, the only reason you have a problem with healing in that game is because you have so many hit points that you drink like eight heal, healing spells to get back to full. Yeah, it's still not. I'm, I'm half full, guys. I'm half full. <laughs> but yeah, that party balance was really a thing. But in the same breath, nobody really followed it. Like I said, I've been at parties where there was seven warriors, um, may, maybe one paladin and six fighters. I was in a party where there were seven wizards. My one buddy played the game where they're all halfling thieves. And they just ran with it. It was fine. <laughs> I, I actually fun. heard that was a hoot. That'd be really fun. I mean, one of the things that's going to be fun about it is everyone's really close to death. So everyone's going to be playing consciously. <laughs> and, you know, if anyone takes a hit, they're going to be like, oh, I'm dead. You guys got to rescue me because no one can sit there and go toe to toe. That's going to be a fun. That's going to be a different kind of fun game. Yeah, it'll right. definitely change it. But Tony, you're right. The mechanic, mechanically speaking, they definitely listen to anyone who might have had an issue with that and and spread the abilities out more. So almost regardless of class, you have the ability to almost reach into any other class you want, whether it's through uh, subclasses, archetype stuff, uh, third level things, or even like feats where you could take something like magic initiate and your fighter can be casting like you know a uh, firebolt or something like that so they definitely spread it around so you don't have to be like the heel bot or the 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 old gray wizard that's a you know meat shield maybe he's boss right and exactly my character you know, yes yeah maybe you you instead you're harry dresden and you're rolling in with like a fucking 38 special you know, or you know no, none of us have tried but i have heard that the uh the blade dancer can get pretty nasty when you optimize them the right way oh, the blade dancer is the wizard the wizard school okay oh, that's a different one okay yeah no the blade dancer in fifth edition is a wizard is a uh a wizard path like a wizard school of magic but it is recreating the old elven blade dancer that they do you know they, they use their sword dance as part of their magic and makes them effective melee fighter. And apparently oh. there's some ways you can go with that. That oh, is cool. very good at tanking. Are, are you talking you about have... a blade singer? <laughs> yes. Blade singer. My bad. Okay. Uh, but then yeah, I, I mean, you also have things like Eldritch Knight too, you know, where yeah. you're be you're a beast with a weapon and then also, Hey, fireball, you know? <laughs> so not the only a little harder to come by. If you think about it, like there's not a lot of classes that give you access to healing. More so now, but like I don't think is there a fighter way to heal? Uh, well, I mean, aside from like something like Second Wind, where you heal yourself. That's true. That's true. You know, and vampiric so yeah, weapons, like of course. That. Yeah, so they definitely have spread it out, but they've still allowed a level of, you know, the cleric is still the main healer. You know, no one's gonna if you want to heal with a cleric, no one can can step toe to toe with you. You know, not even a bard. The big difference no, is no, yeah. that. The, is that you have the ability, they kind of started this in 4th with the healing surges, and they kind of refined it into 5e, where we could burn our hit dices during the short rest, yeah. or the long rest, of course. Yeah. And yeah. that doesn't make it so critical. So if you get jacked up at the end of the fight, we take a break, we stop, we heal up. And that is another way of handling it, versus, oh crap. You might have to tell you, you know what, your life sucks? When your clerk's got one cure light wound spells and he rolls a three on that D eight, and I'm like, well, I'm I'm shit up shit's creek here. Right. 
<laughs> Which brings the question. I mean, so okay, so so so, and I agree. Fifth edition has done has really gone out of their way to make it easy for you to heal yourself and easier for different classes to dip in and get some healing. But if you're in a system where it's more important, like say second edition uh, or or even third edition, do you, and you saw someone building a character, building a party, and you're like, all right, well, this party's not going to have anyone with any significant healing capability, or or as a DM, you're like, I don't think this has enough healing capability. How do you? How would you handle that? Would you handle that by asking the players to adjust their characters and someone to step up and be a healer, or would you handle that on the DM side somehow, like with loot you give out or items you give out or 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 the way you let them rest and heal? Or the mysterious DM NPC. <laughs> there we go. Once again, Tony never missing a chance to add it to, to to add a nail into his theses on the DM PC. Well, that is that is one of the more common ways in which that is utilized, right? The DM PC. Yeah. Most times, people are utilizing it. What you see often is nobody wanted to be the healer, so I just have this healer rolling around with the party and just boop 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 doesn't do Everyone anything. Everyone loves the healer. Up, like right? you don't get pushback when you bring the healer. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I've done both, though. I've done both. I have, uh, like I said, I don't care whatever you bring to the party, but I do remember I was setting up that one campaign where I was uh, instituting it kind of, it unfortunately never went anywhere, but I was instituting it as to be like a West Marches style so that everybody could DM and we could just, whoever wanted to play could play. Um, but with that one, I had told them I was really ramping up the difficulty i was really making this a very uh a fatal type of campaign you know you're walking into the woods right um so i said you know you it, it would behoove you to have some level of a healer or something and they decided one of them came and, and brought a cleric you know um but even still whatever you know worst thing that happens you roll up another character maybe you roll up a cleric you know and you can always always have the tavern in town that has the you know the six different mercenaries they can hire and two or three of them can heal. There However, I have to say strongly, I hate getting typecast into any of the roles other than striker because any <laughs> or, or AOE. Actually, I qualify that both of those are cool, but really being the tank or being the healer are some thankless ass jobs. Some people we, love it. I I I can like I'm almost I'm never a tank. I'm never a healer. Like I'm always, okay. I'm always a striker, but I'm like, I, well, except for, okay, Thor, my very first character was a barbarian tank, but he also wanted to deal a shit ton of damage. Yeah. He was kind of both. Didn't he get the alarm? Wasn't, wasn't he using two handed weapons, one handed? I yeah, mean, he was, yeah, he was he, kind he, of both. Yeah. He was kind of a human or kind of an alien Cuisinart, you know, just a walking, just, just a walking, uh, uh slap chop there. <laughs> the slap chop. I, uh. Okay. I love clerics though. I don't know why they get such a such a bad rap. Clerics, especially now, are a badass class, man. Oh, the There's verb. so much there that you can play with. Here's what drives me nuts about it. When you are a healer, and I was I've had my DMPC who was a dwarven cleric in the last game that Thorn played with me in second edition, I would go, Okay, now I want to unleash my attack. I'm at half hit points. Oh for God's sakes, like, you know, like, it's always, I, I stop this whole thing. Time, just, time to heal the, the, the loudmouth at the front line. What you who, could do is, funny. is you could do kind of like our healer in uh, the Strahd game has done and just kind of be like, yeah, I mean, I, I might have some healing today. I don't know. I might have prepared it. I might not have. Whatever, you know. Well, <laughs> this is also something they address, too, in Healing Word. 
Because the yeah. beauty of healing word is you could heal people without having to give up your action. You're giving up your spell, but you can at least take an action. Yeah. Are you giving? You, are you giving up your spell? You yeah, are. you are. You are. You Unless are. it's a cantrip, you can, oh, you can fire a cantrip at you. So you could do sacred flame and yeah. then and then hit somebody with a healing word. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me there. Yes, I think it's just one of those things that's a little bit. Uh, Fifth edition has gone out of their way to try to handle this for you and take these problems off the table. In earlier editions, I feel like for me, you know, I was just going to adjust the campaign or even just even play with what the players brought me. Right. So, like I said, if it's the seven halfling thieves campaign, great. I know they're not going to have healing and we're going to work with it that way. You know, it's going to be that changes. There are, there are things you can do dynamically to allow them to, well, first of all, you can allow them to heal a bit more, but you can also lean into, okay, so how can I set up a game where it makes the fun near death mechanics interesting? They know they could die at any time. So how do I set up a game that kind of really makes that fun and, and keeps the tension high, but also, you know, Without kind of has killing a, all of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's not a, that's not a game you're bringing out the dragons. I'll say that much. That is much more of a sneaky kind of game. Yeah, that's a town module kind of game. It could, I could be tell a you, dungeon. Could could be a dungeon. It just it can't could be a dungeon. Be, you careful with your area of effect to t like spells, unless they have some kind of way to get around those. In, oh in, no, halflings are pretty nimble. So that's true. That's true. In the game that I was playing, a wizard uh, that was all wizard party, I had an a ten armor class and an almighty two hit points. The shit was real. I gotta say, I, I no con thing, bonus. The one thing I have a hard time figuring out is how could you do a second edition game with all wizards? I'm sure there's a way, uh, especially if you can hire some henchmen, right? I mean, what did Elminster say? The best, the best armor for a wizard is full plate. Get it, clean it, polish it, enchant it if you can, and give it to someone else. <laughs> Put that person between you and that's whatever wants to hurt. Wise words. That's wise great. words. Yeah, and that's I mean that that kind of fits, right? Because that's what you would do, right? Yeah, so, yeah. The, the wizard was the executive in the party. He stayed yeah. in the back and made the big moves, you know. Because he was the smartest, so he would understand <laughs> these kind of things. He would say, "This is how we have to do it." No, no, I'm right on the front line. Let me just shoot a rock with my sling. Yes. <laughs> the sling, yeah. <laughs> so to round up to round up a little bit kind of the skill overlap here. So it sounds like we're all in favor of let the players play what they want to play. Yeah. React to it as a DM. If you feel like if you know, pay attention, if players feel like they're being overshadowed, look at some of the ways we've talked about where you can kind of make that a little bit you can basically pull some of them out from under the shadow, either by giving them things where they get a better bonus than other players due to their background. Or, you know, it also feel I also feel like throwing multiple checks out there kind of through the old skill challenge where look you all got to make a roll and will these skills apply and you need five successes before you get three failures so that way one player doesn't dominate all the roles they all have to roll something things like that can help make sure your players don't feel overshadowed but otherwise yeah i think as a dm you, you try to do that kind of thing to enable the players characters to have fun more than forcing them to to get out get out of each other's way is that what we're saying here i think so I and, like all of that. I like all of that. Yeah. And, and as awesome as Roderick is in my campaign, he cannot pilot a giant ship by himself. It's nope. impossible. <laughs> oh, he could barely do much of anything during the ship. I don't. I forgot exactly what I was. Uh, what I was in charge. I of. I think but... you were repairing. I think oh. you were in charge of the drinking in the back. Uh... Might have. I believe I was morale. I was the chief. Uh, 
cheap morale. Yeah. I mean, because I remember this is how that works. Like, I remember like the first time we're doing it, Tony's like, all right, I need someone to make some strength checks. I need someone to make some athletic, some acrobatics checks. I need someone to do some piloting checks. And at first it was like me and the Barbarian and the Samurai are both like, well, we do strength. I mean, and you wind up in that kind of awkward situation. Well, all right, you just, we need a lot of checks. You all got to do something. Everyone get off something. No one's getting overshadowed. You're all making checks. You're all helping each other and making sure that no one failed role sinks things. So no one feels like they were, oh, I was bad at this, so I killed the whole party. Yeah, I will say Tony kind of set that up right from the get-go, though. I mean, he even gave us a book about team building, literally. Like, we got the Six Sigma, we got, like, the Six Sigma manual for D&D. <laughs> like, um, so we were doing a lot of those kind of skill check, skill challenge type things where we were all involved in it. Uh, and that's definitely a way where you, you don't become um, – there is no overlap, but uh, yeah. that's on the DM side. So, you know, and, you can't really do anything is, with that as player. For no reason, which because I was traumatized as a DM with players who didn't get along. No way did that possibly influence that. <laughs> oh, I remember you saying that you were literally trying to team build. Like, you were literally doing, like, corporate <laughs> team building exercises in the party. <laughs> so, you know, let's turn into that now. Because I think we've talked the skill side of this uh, a bit to death. And we've talked about overlapping roles a bit and how we handle that. What do you do, though? You know, the other side of this is personality dynamics, how the players get along, how they role play with each other, how they do or don't, how they either encourage each other or discourage each other. So what do you want from that side of the party? And, and Tony, maybe want to talk about uh, what players not getting along has met in your games? Well, it's interesting. At the beginning of the game, in the earlier sessions, if some of the players have friction I think that's perfectly okay, because you know what? You guys are role-playing. You don't know each other. I meet Dave's new character. I'm sorry, I don't trust him like a brother, because I just met you, okay? And if you're doing kooky shit, I'm sure I'm my character's going to feel a certain sort of way towards that. It's when you're in the later games, when you guys are hitting your second tier, you're looking for your stride, and you're still fighting over petty bullshit, and it's not because you don't have some kind of frenemy rivalry going on, or you guys haven't hit your stride as a team, that's when it's problematic. I like the way you said that, though, Tony, because that does totally kind of work, is that, like, the new group is, like, the new party, because you're also, unless it's the same people that you're always gaming with again and again and again, forever and ever, and you all know each other, a lot of times you have different people, some some people you know, some people you don't, whatever. <clears throat> and that getting to know each other in real life at the table is kind of reflecting the getting to know each other within the party at the tavern or in the ship or whatever it might be. I thought that that's actually a really good point. So allowing that to kind of see where it goes, let it see if it, if it resolves itself, right? If people kind of fall, like a party will fall into an understanding of this is how we, we can best maximize our, our efficiency. Just last night, actually, I watched the cartoon of Dragons of Autumn Twilight. Now, forgive uh, me, I have not read these books. I'm sorry. I actually quite liked the cartoon. Yeah, I, I never really get into reading the D&D wow. books. Wow, I'm surprised. I read slow, so I tend to I tend to pick what I read carefully. Yeah, that's the best the, way. Yeah, uh, and and whenever I get pick up is... the D&D books, I don't love them. The movie, it's like one of those things that's so wonderfully, terribly tra tragic, but also wonderful. It's like you're you're right on the cusp the whole time. <laughs> you're not sure if this is beautiful or a travesty. 
You know, for, for my expectations, I thought it was pretty good. It wasn't, I wasn't expecting, you know, Transformers. I wasn't wasn't expecting a classic. It had that nice, you know, GI Joe level of animation, except for where it had those weird CGI animations. Oh my God. They were so weird. Like the dragons and stuff. Like, I don't know what they were thinking. I really don't. It was odd. But so it was, um, yeah. So, uh, her brother though, in Tannis don't get along. I'm sorry. Why did I say her brother? Goldmoo's brother, who is silver. Oh God, no! I don't right off the top of my head. But yeah, him and uh and Tannis don't get along. Yeah, and in the beginning they don't get along, but by about halfway through they've had some things happen and they've bonded and now they're friends. And by the end of the movie, you don't need to worry about having to watch these two guys fight over who's right and wrong and who trusts who because it would take away from the story. You and don't want that in your game. You also have the one player at your table who decides to play Raceland, who's just kind of a douche the whole game forever until level 20 right like he's never not a douche you know douches <laughs> at the table are hard because on the one hand they're often very funny and entertaining on the other hand because your other players are playing their characters they're also very annoying <laughs> like i remember i once played um i played a an, a, an elf named lorian who was a um he was a blade singer and see I, I can say it correctly when i think about it and he came in as sort of an, an like an elven an elven chauvinist. Like he was like the Scottish guy who's like, if it's not Scottish, it's crap. And he said mm-hmm. that about everyone else's stuff. And I'm like, okay, yeah, we're just having fun. I'm making jokes. Some of the players started getting really annoyed at that actually, and it actually did cause some friction in the game. So that kind of character, it's like they're fun, they're funny, but other people are actually playing these characters and they start getting offended. Oh, yeah. that's low level shenanigans. I've been at parties where people are actively trying to undermine each other and i'm like guys can we get to the module and i'm not even talking about a blatantly evil campaign we played in a uh, a palladium game where we were all um basically robotech pilots and one player we just, just went off and it's like oh you guys are mining oh i went there and mined first and took all the diamonds oh too bad like that kind of shit oh we're having Ooh. problems with these guys oh, let me go talk to them, strike an alliance with them, and feed them information about what you're doing. And then I fragged them. How did the DM have enough time to do that? That is just back-in-the-day kind of stuff. And then this character, and then again, I think I've mentioned this before, and then that player was really shocked when I had him killed. But, I mean, <laughs> it couldn't have happened to a nicer fella. Oh, what's that? There's a grenade in your cockpit? I don't know how that got there. Quick addendum here, because I do not want a huge backlash of Dragonlance fans. Telling us how much we suck. It was Riverwind is her Thank brother. You. Riverwind Thank you. and Goldmoon. Goldmoon and yes. Riverwind. Yes. And she is the first cleric to have, uh, in essence, appeared in a long time. You should at least read that first book, Lauren. I think you would really enjoy it. Well, I saw the movie. I'm fine. It's <laughs> the way it works, right? I don't know. I, I, you know I, I'm not traditionally. I have, you know, I'm, I've been a huge gamer my whole life. With the exception of I Strahd, and maybe one or two others, I have never really enjoyed Dungeons and Dragons or Magic the Gathering novels. Okay. okay. I've picked them both up on a few occasions. I've actually, I mean, I've read uh, like the first Grizzly book. Didn't love it. Like, Yeah, I wasn't a huge, I read the first couple of those. I wasn't a huge fan, but the Dragonlance series was, it also might've been when I read it too. I'm not sure. But. That plays into, and then to be honest with you, when I was a kid, there were several things I read that were not great literature and I really enjoyed. I remember one about like dragon, like, like, it was like a military fantasy kind of thing where dragons, like humanoid gi- dragons, like giant dragons were part of the core. And like there was a boy and his dragon and they were joining the army. I mean, this is not fine literature. So I have read a lot of stuff, but just what I like is I'm very fickle. I am the worst reader. I am such a fickle reader. 
That's right. But you saw the movie, like you said. So you get the well, gist. right. I'm sure gist. it's exactly the same, and I've missed nothing. You of know, the world of Crin. Yes. I actually read nothing with Elminster in it. Like, none of his books. None of them. And, and my God, Ed Greenwood's <laughs> like, this guy, you're killing me. But if you've read any of the back, uh, the old school material, Elminster pops in every five minutes. Like, yeah, he's practically yeah. the narrator. So I feel like I really am equated with this character. Uh, actually, it's not true. I did read Spellfire. That is a lie. So he was in that book. So what? One I read some. I, I have read at least one Elminster book, and I enjoyed it. I read a book about the Gem Cloaks too, in like Waterdeep, and I enjoy, I remember enjoying that. But I never went back to the rest of it. Yeah, there was a lot of material. I was more interested in Hallister, but that's another subject. <laughs> So, okay, but this is this is derailing us a bit. So to get back to party dynamics, the kind of the emotional side of party dynamics and how players get along. Like, what do you expect your players to do uh, to help each other get in and work together and role play together? Like, what do you want for players listening? What do you want from them? Well, I'm going to steal this answer. Uh, I feel a good player is somebody who has their intelligent moments. They have good role play. They know their character, but they also get the other players involved. Yeah. How do they do that? Like, what do you want to like? Because that's a very nebulous thing. Get the other players involved. Like, how can what can players do to get other players? It, it's tricky because there's times like in Storm King's Thunder where I feel like people ever wants to lean on Dave. Like, Dave, talk. Like, Roderick, talk to this guy. He's standing there with his telephone pole, this giant with, like, you know, giant train spikes nailed through it. He's standing there like, yeah, what do you guys want? Dave, talk to this fucking guy. We can't even string a fucking <laughs> sentence together. To, to, to be fair, as the shaggy bugbear in the party, he did come in as, I'm going to do the talking. Yeah, I think Roderick came in and said, I'm going to do the talking. I'm the guy who wants to step up and talk. I mean, I think people, I think just from the general, the minute that uh, everyone got the description of the character, they're like, oh, yeah, this is the face. Okay. But with that said, so like as a player on in two two of the different games, uh, I'll give you what I'm looking for. Because, again, I think that we we are always playing the game that we want to DM. Right. If that makes sense. Right. Like we play the game, we play the characters the way that we would want people to play characters at our tables. Right. In a way. With something you said before that we DM the way in the games we would like to play. There you go. There. Yeah. You, yes. So it's the it's the opposite of that. Right. So with with Roderick in Storm Kings. Yeah. Dave, talk to this guy, which I have no problem with. I have no issue with role playing, with talking character, with talking at the table, as everyone knows. Sometimes too much. Um, but I also realized that it's not just the Roderick show. So I want to be able to, to gain the, 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 in essence, everyone else has agreed, okay, Dave, you need to talk, but then also leave room for people to speak as well. On a separate note in Woodstock with Beam, he's not the face, but he is like the council as best as that can possibly be in that party right but what i oftentimes will do is in my role play i will call on another character in a way to involve them i'll ask them directly a question or i'll ask them if they know something about this to see if they will take that bait and run with it you know or or start a little bit of a of a discussion or a conversation between the characters as well so i'll i'll try to call on them in the way that i would if i was behind the screen but this is a way I can do it within the party itself. 
So those are two ways that I think I'd like to see it happen at my tables when I'm running as well. It's interesting because in Storm King's Thunder, I mean, I'm playing Jang, I'm playing the Samurai. Sometimes I feel like I'm talking too much for kind of what like the players and the DM wants me to do, Tony, you. In other times, I feel like I'm not talking and I'm waiting for someone who's got more charisma and is more naturally the the diplomat to talk and then it doesn't happen. And I'm like, all right, so should I step in here or should I call on that player to I think should be talking to talk? Which has happened a few times, like where it's like, all right, so, and like actually in this last game we played, we had a courtroom scene, which was epic. It was, we, we, it was a fantastic way to end this particular part of the adventure. It, it kind of was a courtroom scene, wasn't it? Was. It was. As much as that was, yeah. It, that's and exactly like, as a player, like, it, like we, we get in there and we see we got a bunch of, we got a bunch of allies in there. A bunch of people we've helped along the way are in literally a, a court, not legal court but a, a king's court and we're, okay we're going through that we're understanding that and i'm like all right i know i kind of have a plan for what needs to happen but jang can't be the one who who says it so what i wound up doing was i pulled over i kind of was like all right look here's what i think we need to do we need to talk about this we need to say that say that make these points you guys go say it because i don't i didn't have a connection with the giants we were it was in storm king's thunder so jang like we have a we have a barbarian who has been friends with the giants and has like uh, was like a friend of their murdered queen. We have Roderick, who's an expert on giant lore and a skill monkey bard with fantastic persuasion skills. And then you have me, and I'm like I'm, I'm literally an outsider who's come in as a little bit of a diplomat, a little bit of a you know they sent me to help an ally do a do a, clean out their minds basically. And I'm like, okay, here's what I think has to happen, but like my character shouldn't be the one talking right now. Got, and so we kind of had a little, I kind of got yeah. everyone else. To even say, with, Look, I think we should say this. I think you guys need to say this in these ways. Even I, with us, even with us, where we are all uh, pretty experienced role players, you still feel sometimes like you don't want to step on toes, too. Yeah. So there are those sometimes weird silences. You know? I think that's, I think Thor nailed it. Um, to get everybody involved in this kind of situation. All right. You know what? DM, allow them the the fast huddle. What do you guys want to say? Pass it to the character who's actually going to make the skill check. That way everybody's involved in this and everybody yeah. agrees on what's going to be said. And then, you know, you, you let the dice fall where they're going to fall. Uh, Roderick made an epic skill challenge in there because the, the, um, the uh, I don't want, without spoiling the spoilers, but yes, the person who was officiating uh, the court she came back at him with like a with a skill check of like a 24 or 25. And he's like, 28, boom. Yeah, I think I rolled like two net 20s in that game. So I was literally rolling with like a 30, 32 on some of those. <laughs> She's like, you know what? You're lying. And I've been known you from the start. And you guys did this. And there's a gas in the courtroom. And he's like, how do you expect? explain this and he pulls out the surprise piece of evidence I mean, it was... <laughs> how do you explain this madam <laughs> so i mean i guess yeah that's really the thing is if you're a player who feel who and you're noticing that that other players aren't kind of contributing you can call them in and sometimes it's even a matter of saying like the thing you think you should be doing that should be done instead and realizing someone else's character should do this and just saying hey here's an idea. Why don't you guys try this and see if someone else wants to take that and roll with it, especially that maybe if it's a player who isn't talking much. So what do you guys want to do if you have one player who's on the spotlight too much, but you don't want to pull them off with a cane exactly? 
Yeah, that's you tough because I think that, that's happened in several of our games. Yeah. Like, that is not unique to any one of the campaigns. There's there's a couple campaigns where we've had that go on. And like you've seen it in my campaign where sometimes we talked about it. Sometimes one of the players in particular had a little more of the story and a little more of the spotlight and had a, and like kind of would sometimes keep rolling with the talking. And it's how do you rein that in? You know, it really I didn't find great ways to do it. I haven't found great ways to do it yet other than, you know, making sure everyone's equally centered in the story. Cause mm. if you're in that player's storyline, they're going to wind up talking a lot. Mm. Otherwise I think it's okay to say, look, this is someone else's turn. I think it's okay to, I think it's okay as a DM to step in and literally say, yeah, that's all right. Stop calling this other person. It's their turn to talk, but it is a tricky thing, right? It's balancing that and getting it right. So everyone feels like they've had their say and no one feels cut off and no one feels stepped on. It's hard. We've had it in every single one of our games. Every time any of us have been behind the screen, we've had it happen. And we have, all of us, failed at it and had <laughs> one person just rolling for like 30 minutes on something. And other times where we've handled it perfectly well, where we either broke it out into turn-based or we uh, said, okay, and we did a little cutscene. What are you guys doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And you do the best you can, and hopefully you're learning from your experiences as you go. But yeah, you're going to you're going to lose it at times where someone is just going to monologue, especially if they're like role playing. And it's hard to say no to that because that's what you want, but you want it modulated, right? I mean, so everyone should get a chance to monologue. The yeah. tricky part is some players want to monologue a lot, and other players don't want to monologue at all. And there's where it gets hard to balance. Yeah. I'm not really a fan of the monologue. Everybody can have their part and their lines and everything. And I got to tell you, there, I remember one particular game where I screwed the pooch. Um, it was late. I was trying to wrap up a scene. One of the players was talking to an NPC, and not particularly important NPC, but she was having fun with the scene. And my wizard knocked that NPC out. I'm like, all right, whack with the back of the stack. We're done. Can we move to the next room? And she was pissed. And I'm like, Ugh. but you know, where, where do you cut it? I mean, there's no, there's no definable point. Could I let that go on for another? Should I have let that go on for another minute or two? Probably. I don't know if you guys met have met me. I'm not the most patient individual. That said, comes through as my DMing and as my as all of my characters have that trait. So again, I think some of that depends a lot on what the story is and who's playing that in that story too. Because I, for one, oftentimes have things. We're doing it a lot in Strahd where there are pieces in the in that small world that are directly related to a character and to their backstory or to their thing so there is the 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 capacity for a back and forth monologue much like in woodstock when we went to the order of bahamut i absolutely was ready to just let sir morton like do his thing but i understood where you were coming because then okay, this is awesome, but where do I go from here now? Because this this conversation, I, it, bringing other people in is not always easy in that way. And that one in particular, I mean, you were fine with it, but half the party wasn't. That too. You, you again, know, and, who's and that's, playing in it is going to vastly change how people like that or not. And that's why my feedback on this is kind of two-pronged. On the one hand, 
I want players who support each other and are willing to let the other player have that spotlight and feel happy for them and enjoy watching them do their thing. Yeah. On the other hand, players and DM both need to be aware of it. And when you got to try to catch yourself when you're monologuing, uh, and have your say, but then stop and make sure if someone else gets their say. Yeah. Um, and if I, if I, and, and, and that might be a do, as I say, not as I do thing, if I don't do oh. that so well as a player, um, <laughs> but we, uh, the other we, I was just, I'm sorry. We've said this a lot of times, but I think this falls into it too. Um, I think there's a big difference when we're in person and when we're virtual tabletop. Mm. I really think a lot of these things play vastly differently. Uh, depending on that, you know, because oh, yeah. of social cues and stuff. Sorry, go ahead. That's okay. So the other side of it, I think, is aside from catching yourself, I think as a DM, you know, the only real way, I think, fair way to handle this is to literally go into scene, like we've talked about before, let the player have their say, stop them when, when at a break and let someone else have their say. And you kind of sometimes need to forcefully stop them. There have been times when I didn't do that well enough, mm. especially because some players have a talking style that's like, They'll stop, and right when you go to get on the next thing, they'll start saying something else. And they'll stop, and they'll start saying something else. And it's like, <laughs> you kind of need to shout them down at that point, but then yeah. that causes tension. Yeah. So that's the tricky thing. Is you, I think the real solution from the DM's point of view is you need to go into initiative order and start talking. And you don't need them to roll initiative, but around the table, and you need to go, okay, that's what that player had to say. You, what do you say? What do you do? You got to call on everyone and ask them what they're doing and mm -hmm. give them a chance to tell you what they're doing. Um, and then as a player, if you're, if you're feeling overshadowed, I think one of the best things you can do is you can jump in and try to get a word in, but you also, one good trick as a player feeling overshadowed is to talk to the other players. If you get them talking to you, you're going to get more opportunities to talk yourself and get more involved in the scene. And it won't be so much like you're having competing scenes going on. So I think that's, that's, that's yeah, a little bit of advice for, for, for the, for the active player, the DM and the passive player in that. Mm. For the DM, I would say if you're worried about when you should or should not cut a scene, something I've learned from the mistake I just explained, look at the qualifier is that, is this scene going somewhere relevant to the party? Mm, it, yeah. I mean, is this, okay, like, number one, is this fantastic role play? Is this, like, just the best material in the world? Like, you look around this table, and everyone's like, yeah, rock on. Let, let it sit. You're getting free material. Or are you about to, is this an opportunity for you to reach into your box, blow off the dust? I'm like, okay, no, I have a clue. <sighs> okay, here it is, about the gray marshes. Here we go. He's This person's going to tell you about this. Then turn it around to your advantage in that respect. So, you know, one thing we haven't talked about yet, we've talked about players overshadowing other players. We've talked about uh, kind of overlap from players who are very active and want to be involved. Do you do anything about the players who are being passive and don't seem like they want to be involved? We've touched on this before, but I think it's really relevant here. I mean, in this conversation we're having, okay, you have players maybe monologuing and kind of spotlight stealing, and maybe they're even just kind of interjecting with table talk, and they're kind of dominating that way. But that tends to happen in a party where other players maybe aren't really much involved at all, and they don't really seem to want to talk. How do you handle that? That's tough because some players by nature – aren't the ones that are out in front and you want to encourage them to do that you want to um i've seen it effectively done where dms have thrown out pertinent aspects or, or elements of their character and been like hey you know what you came from this town what do you have to say about this 
And that kind of, not to put them on the spot, but that gives them an opening. Like, hey, it's kind of like a, this is your moment. Are you let the bus drive by you? If you do, hey, I'm not going to put you, a gun to your head and drag you on the bus, but it's stopping <laughs> in front of you. Yeah, I say that all the time. I, I will constantly throw things out and somebody takes it or they don't take it. Uh, but that's a little different than I think what, uh, Thorne, you were asking, where it's, um, I, hmm. I think it can be tough because what I've seen from people who seem to be disinterested in it, there are some that are just, they're just, they're always going to be wallflowers, but other ones grow into uh, being invested in the game and, and role playing more. And that can be tough when there's a very strong personality at the table um, because it's like it's like small plants trying to grow in the shade of this large tree, right? They just can't get the sunlight. And then that that becomes a very big negative reinforcement. And even for role players who, I mean, I've had experiences where I just will start to check out because you can't get any any word in edgewise, you know? Or the person is just monologuing forever and not not in a time when it's uh, when it's their story or something, but just talk, 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 talk. And that can be tough, you know, uh, as the DM, you try to catch it when you can. Um, but that's, a, you, you know, you got six players at the table, seven players at the table, four even sometimes. Four is a little easier. Uh but, you know, six, seven players, table. that could be tough because you're running. That's a big fucking ship that you're captaining, you know? I mean, yeah. and the truth is, the flip side is you'd rather the player not check out, right? You'd rather a player who's feeling like they're checking out because they're being over, over, overshadowed to do something to kind of get back in the spotlight a little bit, don't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think you want a, a good player isn't somebody who feels that they need to be involved in every play of the game. You know, that's a, that's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. You have your moments, you know, is this the hill you're going to die on kind of thing almost, right? <laughs> you know, pick your battles. Pick I mean, even if you're up. a dominant player, even if you're involved in a lot of the conversations, you're involved in a lot of the things, you, there has to be some points where you're like, you know what? I'm not going to be the first one to talk. Yeah. Even and if I, no one's talking, and I feel like someone needs to fill the silence. I got with what, he, what Dave's is specifically describing is the kind of like the scenario where everybody's in roll twenty, and the absolute millisecond someone stops talking, or even before the last syllables form, someone is already jamming in their entire explosion <laughs> of words, and the person who's like, "Hey, but I'm trying to light this torch," uh, it's not happening. <laughs> Is the torch light? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the other side of this, too, is I've had many players where I don't, they don't seem to really want to be that much of a spotlight character, but they want to play. But, like, if you were to ask them to be more of a spotlight character, they wouldn't play. You know, like, they kind of want to be involved. But, you know, we've talked about this in the player types a little bit, where some players, they, they want to be there, they want to hang out with their friends, but they don't want to have too much pressure. And they don't want to be put in a position where they feel uncomfortable. Or maybe they're a little shy or for whatever reason. And if you put them in, you have to be careful about not putting them in situations where they get uncomfortable because then they don't want to play and they do want to hang out. So, I mean, sometimes I think it's okay too. It's just balancing that, you know, recognizing a player who doesn't, who is being quiet because they don't want to have input and they're not really, they don't want to be front and center versus a player who would like to be front and center, 
but is being very passive about taking their opportunity to where you kind of mm. have to hand it to them. Mm. You know, those are two different challenges, I think. I think this is a difficult metric to set, but if you're looking at each of your individual players, I would say every one of them has a unique kind of dial, like a pie piece of how much time do they want to be involved role playing or how much do they mm. want to be active. And if you can get them approximately within a within a tolerance of how much they would plus or minus would be involved, that is your zen. That is your ideal situation. Yeah. I've also seen um, as a as a DM and as a player some of the characters, some of the players who are much more the wallflowers, much more the I'm here because it's fun, but I'm way audience member. I'm in like the sixth row. I'm down in my seat with my hood up, right? Like, <laughs> uh, but even those players, I've seen them in circumstances where their character is involved in something, um, and it's not the whole party's involved in doing this. And I'm going to call on you now. And what do you do? You know, but it's like them and another player, or happen to be in this room or something, and there's a conversation having. They become a little more back and forth with it um so for me it's it's that kind of thing don't hinge your entire session on bringing that person out from their shyness right but realize that they're at the table so they're involved in the game and the game is role playing so you role play a little bit with them you know talk directly to them it's a couple times you can very quickly gauge if they want to take that or not and then you move on it's not the whole session is not built around well, this character, if they don't really come out of the shell, the the adventure can't happen. That's probably not going to go well, right? They I mean, throw for it me, out there. They take yeah. it fine. They don't. You move on to the next thing, but at least they have that opportunity. They have that that 15 seconds where if they want to take a spotlight, they can. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm almost never hinging my adventure on one player taking the spotlight. Well, no, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah. You know, don't make it the be all and end all of things. All right. So, you know, guys, we've been going on for a little bit here. Why don't we wrap up with some final thoughts? You know, what are, what are your, what's your, your final advice, your best piece of advice on, you know, keeping a balanced party balanced mechanically and, uh, you know, player dynamic wise. I think I'm most interested in how the players interact with each other well over mechanics, class, whatever you want to throw in there. I'd rather have an interesting party of all clerics, then a bunch, a uh, diverse group of flat personality guys that don't get along and they just don't click. Um, if I, I would want the players to not only get along, but I'm going to say something coming back to crazy stuff, want to play. If I can have a player that doesn't know a thing about Dungeons and Dragons who wants to play or somebody who's done everything and acts like I am lucky to have you at my table and I'll be in my trailer if I don't like something, then I'm... <laughs> I'm taking the first one 10 out of 10 times. I'm ready for my close up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely agree. Bring me enthusiasm. Don't bring me that attitude of, okay, so what are you going to show me that's new? So my, my best advice is listen to the first hour or so of this podcast episode. Uh, and there you go. That's, I mean, we gave you just real gold No, but I think um, we talk about, uh, you know, that balanced encounters are pretty overrated and pretty uh, impossible. I think a balanced party is somewhat overrated and, you know, not necessarily, it's not impossible, but it's not, is it necessary? No. Like Tony said, it's much more, let the, don't shut people down with what's going to get them involved because if they're involved, then your job is like 
light years easier, you know, as opposed to having to drag them over the, no, you have to be the monk. I don't want to be the monk. I don't want to stun people. <laughs> I don't want to wear a pirate shirt, you know? So. I'm going to build on that because I think it's not just a matter of, you know, it's impossible to balance, but I think both when it comes down to combat balance and party balance is it's an active balancing. So it doesn't really matter what the specific players and monsters and, and characters involved are. What matters is how you as the DM give them the opportunity to balance out. How do you adjust what the game is doing to create balance? And that goes for your combat encounters, which we've talked about many times, but it also goes for your table dynamic, right? I mean, if you have players who are overshadowing things, it's up to you to spot that and try to find ways to fix that. And if you can't, well, it's on the players because it's not all your job, but do your best to try to spot that and, and, and give everyone a chance to get involved. And in some cases, drag people in if you feel like they're kind of, you know, kind of getting forced away. You know, the other thing that I would say, and it really came to mind as we were talking about this, because, you know, we're talking about games we're each in. And there are some places where we're talking here where I'm like, man, is the way I think I'm playing the way that the other players are experiencing me play? Because, mm. like, you know, it's like, okay, there's definitely times when I felt like I haven't been contributing much or I've been too quiet, and I wonder if other players feel like, no, oh, that's fine, or it's been overbearing. And it's the same as a DM. We've certainly, I've certainly run into situations where I think I'm DMing one way, and the players are experiencing the DMing another way. So that's maybe a shadow part of this that we haven't gotten into directly, but to keep in mind, it's always worth checking in and touching base on how people feel about what's going on, both about the game you're running and about the party dynamic and what they want to be doing more in it. Because what you, what you're reading, what you think they're wanting to do or how you think they're wanting to be may not be actually what they're trying to do. So that player hugging the spotlight might actually be trying to encourage role play. And is maybe just misfiring because the way they're trying to do it isn't the way the other players read it. That player who's a wallflower. And I've seen this very specifically in our, in, in the Woodstock Wanderers game, uh, some players are quiet because they're quiet and don't want to be that involved. Other players are quiet because they they aren't interpreting the situation as one they should jump into. And in that case, you want to give them a direct call out to, to make sure that they understand you want them to come in and to make sure you're both communicating the same way. And that's really something that underlies all of this. Don't assume you know what the other players, including the DM, are thinking and don't assume that what you think you're doing is what they're experiencing you doing. Um, and at the same time, you still need to do what's authentic to you. Otherwise you're not going to have fun. So you got to like in the rest of life, you have to balance these three things together. But if something doesn't feel like it's working, you know, maybe ask some questions to the other players, you know, either, you know, did you, did you push them out or uh, can you help them in role play more? Can you help them be more involved or even just in the game, try to pull them in. Like we've talked about, try to get your other players involved or as a DM, try to get different players involved because you want to give them the chance to show you what you're not understanding about how they're experiencing the game. That's some good points. Very good mm. points. Kind of wish I could come up with that earlier in the episode, but we're done. Yeah. That's it. There will be a test on this later. So I hope everybody got that. Guys. Thanks again. I had a great time talking about this. It's really interesting to get to dig into this, uh, the, the emotional side of things. Absolutely. Good times. And for all you listening at home, thank you again for joining us for another episode of three wise DMS. If you're listening on a podcast platform, please hit, hit us with the five star rating. It really helps us get the word out, leave a review. If you like it, share it with your friends, like us on social media, all those things help us help spread the word and help us grow our audience. We have been growing really fast 
and we really appreciate everyone who's helped us do that. So thank you, listeners. You're, you really make this worthwhile, what we're doing. If you have a question, like we talked about earlier, you can send it into the what's your problem field at 3wisedms.com or send it to us at 3wisedms at gmail.com or stop by our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram page. Interact with us there. We're sharing a ton of what we think is fun content. Hopefully you've noticed. So that's it for this week. We'll see you next time for 3 Wise DMs. Thank you.